Hi, everybody. This is Charlie. This is To Hell and Back podcast. And uh, you can see, if you, if you are viewing this, you can see me alongside Andrea Gold. Uh, many of you are not viewing this, so you'll, you'll be hearing us. But I have a guest today uh, that's really, um, this is just a very important podcast um, uh, with a very, uh, very interesting and brave woman. Uh, who's going to talk about something that's still ongoing for her. It's not like a past thing, but it is that she was diagnosed with cancer in January and she's been going through treatments and she's still going through treatments and she still has uncertainty about what's going to happen. And uh, so she's been having to call upon all of her resources, personally, socially, every possible way um, to cope and that's really what this is about. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, it's about coping with uh, adversity in life and relying part of that being to rely on DBT skills. Um, but it's also just any anything that helps us sort of continue to walk through hell when we're there and to walk and to get out when possible. So that's what this is about today. So uh, I want to introduce Andrea and then get started. So. I just want to give you the briefest of introduction because you're going to learn much more about her as we talk. Um, Andrea, uh, who I've known of for a long time, uh, is a very um, active, engaged participant in the sort of uh, nationwide uh, DBT community in all kinds of forums, NDA, BPD, and, and the listserv and trainings. And she's a, a teacher of DBT. She's a uh, a student of DBT. She's a practitioner of DBT. She runs a program. She's the lead, the leader, the leader of a program at Bradley Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, for DBT, especially a track where it includes uh, exp focusing on exposure for people who've had who have OCD but also are learning DBT skills. So it's very interesting, and um, and she's also uh, an assistant professor of psychiatry. Uh, at Brown University, though she herself is a clinical psychologist. Um, so that's that's really it. And and we're going to get into the story of um, of of who she has been before she had cancer, who she is now, uh, how that has changed her life, uh, some of the details that she's gone through. Though this isn't going to be a medical podcast exactly, but you can't ex escape that. And then how she's how she learned about ha having cancer and then how she responded to that and then how things have unfolded since then and uh, and what she's used to cope. Um, so that's really it. So Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Um, I am feeling right now what my daughter, uh, her name is Olive. She is Almost six, which she described really captures my emotional experience right now starting this. Um, we had just mm. opened the pool last week and she had been really excited about the pool, but also also pretty nervous and anxious about swimming again after a long time. And she said, when we were about to open it, so I, I see that as parallel to where we are right now, opening the podcast, <laughs> opening this vulnerability. She said, mommy, I feel... I feel super excited. I feel a little bit nervous and my body wants to wiggle. And so I think <laughs> that, like, like she nailed it. Nervous and excited and I want to wiggle and um, I'm happy to be here with you. 
Right. Oh, thank you for coming on. I think it's a remarkable thing to do. Um, I know enough about you to know that it, it actually isn't that surprising that you would come on because there's kind of a whole exposure lifestyle. You're, you try to go into things that are hard and um, with passion and and be willing to do stuff. So I, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm very pleased and I'm uh, and I feel very responsible for us having a good conversation about this so that other people out there uh, who are coping with similar things can learn. Um, and by, by the way, how old is Olive? When you She'll say? be six in um, September. Six. And then my little one who shares your name, Charlie, she will be two in August. So I've got two little ones. All right. Great, 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 great. So, um, so if we get going into this story first, just tell us a little about who you've been in your life, like where you live, what, 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 how, how did you end up doing that? Just a little bit, not, not a long time, because that's not as much what people are interested in, but they need to know who you, who you are. Yeah. Um, it's hard to even think about pre-cancer who I am because cancer, you know, I've, I've read in different support groups that I'm on, like when you get your diagnosis, it's you know, going back to the mm. normal before. So I'm aware of that's going through this filter. Um, but I can say that I live in Rhode Island, which um, my husband and I have been here now going on five years and we've, we've lived all over and this is the place that we are calling home. I think it's a very special place, especially in the summer. Um, I grew up, I was born in New York, lived there till I was nine, Florida from nine to 18. So it's weird to say where I'm from because it was, you know, before yeah. college, half and half. Um, and I actually, I've, I've always been um, uh, somebody who is both very kind of colorful, excited, um, passionate about things, extremely extroverted and connected. And at the same time, I can, I can be shy and socially anxious. So, um, you know, I think that's really part of who I, who I am and how that's affected the social parts of my um, coping now with cancer. Um, I... I wanted to be a psychologist since I was 13 years old. And that did wow. not Wow. And it was actually, it started, I was reflecting on that recently. Um, in middle school, my dad and I would do, we lived in Florida at the time. We would do this um, Friday night kind of social, like connecting the two of us where we'd go to Barnes and Noble bookstore. I'd be in my aisles, he'd be in his. You know, at the time it was more vampire, young adult stuff, but I made myself, yeah. I made my way to psychology and totally got hooked. And the book that actually where I was like, I want to be a psychologist is um, Girl Interrupted, which is which is quite interesting, because that's a memoir of someone with borderline personality disorder, the the right. disorder where where Marsha Linehan first studied DBT. Um, and, and so I ended up going to college at Cornell in Ithaca, New York, which is also a very magical, beautiful place. Ithaca is gorgeous, you know, with the waterfalls. And I met my husband um, through a mutual friend uh, the year before I went to Cornell. So we have just celebrated in February, two days after chemo started, uh, February 20th, we celebrated being together 20 years, which I'm quite proud wow. of being only 38 years old. Wow. So. Wow. Right. Only 38 years and you're celebrating your 20th year. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. We've been married for 12 years, but I feel like we put in that time. So I get to also, you know, I've earned the 20 years. So we celebrate you've, both of those. No, you've earned the 20 years. I mean, because you you were married before you were married. I mean, I'm sure. And 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 just the way people 
many times get married and divorced even in the same relationship you know so it's, it's like a, it's but formally you've been married 12 years um i get so i get that what's interesting about that is that anniversary it's it's funny how this worked out the 20 year getting together anniversary was before right when chemo started our 12 year anniversary is july 3rd two days before my mastectomy so it's interesting how we'll be celebrating at these different points in my treatment too mm, mm, mm. all right and so when uh, and and i'll just say that i i i saw you in person right around the time that you had just been diagnosed or just you had just had a biopsy right so just to bring this up to the up closer to the present in january we both attended the uh funeral service of a colleague um about whom and with whom i did a podcasts before if anybody wanted to dig back through my podcast seth axelrod who was at yale and who i think was a teacher of yours um and seth had 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 battled cancer and he came on the podcast and then his wife actually came on the podcast as well and so so we were both at his um funeral and then what i didn't know at that time but and you chose not to tell people at that time for obvious reasons uh is that you had just discovered that you were being diagnosed with cancer is that right that's right yeah i met seth in 2007 my first year at yale so that's where i went for my phd in clinical psychology and I was actually the only student in my cohort. I didn't have any classmates, which was an mm. interesting experience. Um, so my psych intro to psychotherapy was just me and the professor. So naturally he had a lot of guest lecturers and Seth was one of them. And so we um, we met that day and I, that's when I drank the DBT Kool-Aid Kool and got hooked. And so for six years when I was at Yale, I, I did a couple of years training intensively with him and then and a practicum and we've stayed in touch since then. So he's been an incredibly, um, his family, an important person in my life and, and really um, so much of what I get to teach and practice as DBT, he, he lives on in, in, in all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, he had passed away after um, battling cancer from, from, he was diagnosed when I left Yale in 2013 um, and until he passed away January 25th of just this year. And um, it was the day before I learned cancer. Mm. And the day after I learned that I have cancer was his funeral. And um, I told my mm. husband not to go. I felt like I, I wanted him there. He would have gone otherwise. And at the same time, just learning your, your wife has, has cancer and then going to funeral someone who lost their life from it was too much. Oh, man. Um, wow. And there were a lot of people that I knew and cared about and loved um, that were at the funeral as well. And I wanted to share this with people because I knew from the start, I part of my coping and living with cancer was being open um, and, and vulnerable and sharing. And that would be that'd be kind of fucked up to go to a funeral and say, you know, steal the thunder and say, oh, I have cancer too. So well, I, uh, I kept it private at the time. Um, just the, the very beginning of so many decisions you've had to make like you know it's just a that decisions you weren't having to make up until that moment in your life you've just when you say cancer has become part of who you are you must be making decisions on a daily and weekly basis about should i do this should i do that should i take this path should i tell this person how should i tell this i mean it just must be just frame everything you do in some ways 
it's that it's thinking about weighing the short-term and long-term pros and cons for myself and knowing that cancer prompts a lot of emotions in other people um whether it's how they feel in relation to hearing cancer right now and in relation to me or their own fears of, of cancer that comes up a lot or past life experiences they've had um and so it's it's making kind of calculations on the fly of of what's effective and um I've tended because of who I am to be more on the open side and also from witnessing Seth doing that and seeing it work for him. Mm. Um, there have been times where I've done that and it hasn't been effective. And so I, I also have learned from that, um, you know, kind of doing the best I can with the information I have available and then recalibrating over time too. Mm. Mm. So tell us what you found out. What, were your, what was your diagnosis? Can you tell us a little about the illness? I will. So I had first, this, this is important backstory because it affects um, my emotional uh, reactions in, in this year. I had first discovered a lump in my breast in 2016 when I um, was in my first trimester with Olive. And that was scary. That was my first you know, time brushing up again. I went to the OB, she, she felt it, told me to get an ultrasound. Um, and at the ultrasound, uh, the, the doctor had said, this is nothing, this is dense tissue, don't worry about it. Just brushing it off, like, you know, mm. oh, I don't know why they had you come in. Mm. So that was a big relief. Um, then throughout mm. the six years since I was pregnant with Olive and now, that lump changed in size a, a bit. Um, and when I talked to my OBs um, in 2020, I was pregnant with Charlie, um, you know, had, had shared my experience before the dense tissue thing, and they didn't do anything. They didn't make anything of it. So um, hmm. this year, so 2020, 2021, um, I had been breastfeeding Charlie, noticed the lump was still there, and realized that, you know, this looks a little bigger, I should get it checked out. Um, this coincided with a decline in Seth's health and um, realizing that, that he, was, he was losing his battle to cancer and um, that he was likely not to survive it. And um, I felt... You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person where I, I'm not always motivated to do things for me, but I'm very affiliative and connected to other people. So if I could kind of trick my mind, a bit of a adaptive denial skill that we, we use in DDT yeah. to do it, oh, I'm going to do this to honor Seth, that will motivate me and push me. Mm -hmm. So in December, um, I think it was, it was two to three weeks before I learned that I have cancer. I had, I had seen an OB. She, she did the right thing. She, she said, you need an ultrasound, mammogram, biopsy, and see a breast surgeon. And I was like, mm. oh, this seems like a lot, but let's do it again. This is thinking I'm going to honor Seth. And that, that helped me do it. And I mm. remember being really surprised when, when I then met with the breast surgeon um, January 19th. And she said, yep, you have a palpable mass. I can, I can see it. And, um, you know, it could be non-cancerous, but it could be cancer. And I, I remember really like doing an uncertainty exposure and thinking it may be cancer, it may not, and being really surprised that it mm. wasn't terrifying me. Um, 
And I reflected on it. I shared with other people because there are other uncertainty things that come up in relationships where I'm like, it, I can ruminate about it or get stuck. And I realized, oh, cancer is not personal. Cancer is not rejecting me. Cancer just happens, you know, so mm. that helped. Mm. 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 And um, I was shook by the news of Seth passing away. And I, I had been, I had been really expressive of my love for him um, over, over the years and more recently. And so in a way I was prepared. And of course you never can be prepared for losing someone you love. Um, and I, you know, on that Wednesday, the day after it, it, it helped really to say, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for Seth. He would be glad I'm doing it. Really not thinking that it would be cancer and not thinking that I'd find out that day. And it happened very quickly. It found out I came up after the mammogram, after the ultrasound, the, the, um, the radiologist who did the biopsy made it clear as much as she could. You know, we cannot definitively say it's cancer without a biopsy. And this is, you know, she basically said, this is highly suspicious. The speculations, the patterns indicate cancer. And I said, well, what if the biopsy says negative? And basically what she didn't use these words, but the point was, well, we would consider it a bad test and we would do it again. Oh, wow. Yeah. A tech who was there knew when I started crying and she, she was, she was new to this job, but she came over and held my hand and that made a world of difference. And, um, then I had a biopsy, which is a painful procedure. And mm. where it really hit me was in the car afterwards. My, my husband, I should share, Chris, is an ER physician, um, which I think has also really affected our experience and coping with this in, in many ways. Um, mm. And he was like, Ange, you know, did you, did you mean to lose weight this past year? And I had dropped 10 to 15 pounds in, in a month or two, November, December, without trying. And I was kind of excited, like, oh, well, I'm getting my body back after having a baby. This is nice. And, mm. you know, um, with the, I learned the metabolic cell rate of cells with cancer go faster and weight, like weight loss is a sign. And that's when I knew. I, I just knew and it hit me. And mm. um, so the next day was the funeral and it was an un, unreal experience. Um, Andrea, how did, how did you, I mean, you, you, you were, you're very affiliative. It's obvious from what you're saying and very concerned about people you care about. So you, you ask your husband not to come to the funeral. How did you go? My little sister. Just, so that was one thing. I, I will, if it wasn't Seth, I don't know if I would have gone. You know, it's 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 the it's the pros cons. It was something that if it was someone I wasn't as close to, I, I probably would have put myself first and not gone. And yeah. I knew I wanted to for Seth, but for me. Um, mm -hmm. and and I I called my sister. I asked her to come. She was I need, I needed somewhere in there who knew it would have been un, intolerable to know I have cancer and not tell other people. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got this rock. Um, so on screen, some people yeah. might see this. It says yeah. be brave. Um, after, after learning of cancer, I met with a nurse navigator and they have um, a program where rocks um, them for women to hold during chemo or radiation. And oh. um, I saw this one and this was it. So I held this through the, the funeral. Um, really really made a difference um 
You know, one thing interesting about you talking to you about this is uh, having talked for hours with Seth uh, when he was t telling about how he coped with things is that he struck me, though I don't know him like you know him, but he struck me as a person who um, you would probably not say is highly temperamental, highly emotional, even though he, he, he really understood emotions and was really good at this, these things. But, you know, you're an emotional human being. You're like, clearly, it's all over you. It's on your face. I mean, I can tell when I sit here and start to tear up. You're an emotional human being and you make and you create emotion in other people. And and you're a, um, a highly sensitive human being. And uh, and then you choose to go there. So it is the, the bravery rock. I understand. I mean, it, it really means that it's different for different people to cope with these kind of decisions. Right. I mean, you, you can't just count on your temperament to dampen everything. I think that's, you know, parallels my experience with DBT before and after cancer. Um, something that that Marsha came up with and wrote about and that Seth really taught me is, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being sensitive or reactive. It's, right. it's a problem when it's a mismatch with with the environment, with reality, with the goals of the situation. Mm -hmm. And DBT isn't about taking an emotionally vulnerable person, a sensitive person and making them cool and calm, you know, cool as a cucumber and a bowl of hot sauce as the Beastie right. Boys say. You know, it's about being, I, I've taken it that way. And that's why I think it's a lifestyle, not a treatment of being my Andrea self, being my emotional self and having skills to regulate those emotions when it's effective to regulate them and actually not regulate them when it's not effective and, and let them, ex I guess, well, it's kind of a paradox because it's letting them be without decreasing them. But a lot of times when it's, when it's a primary emotion, an emotion that's prompted by the situation, letting it be and letting it run its natural course, you're not damping it down, but that's actually what helps regu regulation in a, in a bigger picture in a long-term way. So oh. I knew for me, when, when I had this, I was going to war with cancer. I knew my vulnerability was already high, having just lost Seth, my husband being an ER doctor, really facing burnout after two years of a pandemic. That was something I was actively working on, you know, reducing vulnerability related to our family. I would need to do this even more. It was clear, the nurse, the doctor said, you know, this is going to be at least a year of really intense treatment, um, maybe more than that, but at least that. And um, that part of what I need to do is, is feel my feelings now, because if I didn't, they would blow me over like a jack in the box, right? If I kept it closed, bam, it would knock me over. But I wanted to keep that open um, and to take some time of feeling them and crying and then taking some time to get space from them, too. And also having two young children yes. while you're going through all of this, you're, descri you're describing a complete uh, all out package of how to cope with something, but actually you, you also had a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Yep. I remember, um, those, those first, it was from January 26th through, um, yeah, January 26th through February, I think it was February 9th. I did not know if I had stage four metastatic cancer. So I had gotten the initial biopsy, found out two days later on Friday, it was grade three. So there's three grades, three is the worst, most aggressive. 
I found out it was HER2 positive, um, which is about 20% of all breast cancers. And it used to be a death sentence. So it's, it's a remarkable area of science where it used to be really untreatable and has flipped with personalized medicine, targeted medicine that is quite effective, but it is more aggressive and faster growing. Um, I had learned I had lymphovascular invasion, and then the next week I had a lymph node biopsy that it had spread there. And then the next step is it's spreading throughout your body. Um, and I remember driving my girls to school in the morning and tears coming and it just not knowing how I could handle this. And what really got me is there was the sadness and fear that came with, with what I actually knew there was also a lot of guilt that I was surprised by. And that had to do with the, I should have known, I should have um, gotten this checked out sooner. I waited six years, mm. this could have, you know, thinking about that and the, and the guilt of what if I leave Chris with the girls alone? And mm. then it hit me, I, I had gotten a lot of, I had worked on practicing mindfulness and really my, my participate skill of being in the moment participating in what I was doing, playing with the girls. And then one day it hit me, holy fucking shit, Charlie isn't old enough to have her own memories. And she, I, if this is, if this is metastatic, I could die before she has her own memories of me. Mm -hmm. And then it made it aversive to be around her. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went into high gear of leaning on my skills. I, I mobilized, um, Using, using Dear Man, Give and Fast, making calls, doing appointments, being quite assertive, like 10 out of 10 assertive. And I, I think I, I switched hospitals also, and I think I got things moved up to start treatment in two and a half weeks in what otherwise would have been at least three months. So that mm. helped to solve the problems I could and to tell people. So in those early days, I was telling between one and one and five people a day. And for me, that was an, kind of like a marginal exposure for PTSD of, of facing it, telling it, feeling the feelings. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me comfort to lean on those skills during that time while mm -hmm. feeling terror. It just seems like it's, uh, the, while, while this is all about who you are, to have done this and you already had, had these skills on board, thank God, because it sounds like you really leaned heavily on uh, these different ways of coping that, you know, you, you learned having nothing to do with cancer, right. but then you, you had them kind of in your back pocket, so to speak. And you were, sounds like you're just using, using them, but you're one of the skills that you had, and I don't know if it's better or worse. That's probably, it's probably a positive skill is that in, in a way, if you see cancer in front of you, if, you, if cancer is an enemy, you charged into it. You, you didn't wait for it to come to you and, oh, oh, let's begin this three months later. Let's begin this as soon as we can. I mean, that that's not necessarily what everybody would do, right? I mean, you're, you're like, let's do this. Let's find out about this. Let's do this now. And then you're faulting yourself for not finding out about it sooner, even though you had actually been checked out by doctors back there, you said in 2016. So it wasn't only you that didn't follow up on it. Uh, you, you, you actually were evaluated. It just, nobody seemed to sound the alarm bells uh, at that stage. I think I really, my mind kept going back to the past, the should haves, what, you know, especially before I knew it was, was stage three and not stage four. And 
what kept coming to mind is mindfulness is this moment forward. What can I do now? I, I can't change the past. I can't have gotten this checked out sooner, but I can do this now. And so I kind of went into hyperspeed with that. Um, and I think that if it, if it were on the cusp, like that, those weeks, you know, I, you can't know if they meant something medically, but, but it did to me. Um, I think of, you know, I used a lot the DBT for solutions to any problem. Tolerate or accept, say miserable. And one thing in that early time, I remember talking to one of my former trainees and she, she was like, you're, you're not choosing misery. And so I, it, but it took for me observing and describing what was a misery response for me and then making a mindful choice to, to do a skill instead. I definitely went into misery mode at times, and then it was taking my mind out of it and doing what worked. Mm -hmm. You know, also what in, embedded in what you're saying, but you aren't using the term, but I know you know it and, and probably thought of it a thousand times was you, you really moved forward into the treatment aggressively, um, having radically accepted that it was there, having radically accepted that, uh, okay, something's going to have to be done. I better charge into it. I don't know if it's going to make a difference to charge into it or, or, or wait for it to come to me, but, but I'm going to, so there had to be a sense. I was, it's on my mind partly, Andrea, because just in my DBT skills group, just last night, we spent the entire uh, time on radical acceptance and, and lot with lots of very poignant examples. And you know, it's, it makes such a difference if you actually just accept the reality of what you're going to have to cope with. It, 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 it sort of brings you to the starting line, you might say, in a race. Like, okay, we're going to do this race. Or it, or it puts you in the roller coaster where you're putting your seatbelt on and saying, okay, here we go. One thing that's interesting is there's, there's different parts of hell realities that can be hard to accept even if it's the same thing. And that I think that has to do with our own learning histories, our own temperaments, the supports we have in the moment. The, the having cancer one, it was, I had to use skills. It didn't just happen that I accepted it. It came relatively easy, but I did it again and again and again. The part that I didn't really accept at that time was, was the uncertainty. Um, so there was the having it and the choosing treatment, the, the way I got there really was the letting myself cry, letting myself feel. And what I said about the exposure of telling, telling people, it really, I love, I love a two for one sale. Like when you go shopping and I love two for one skills where it both was that emotional experiencing and exposure with telling people and helping me accept like, this is my reality. I have cancer, which there were so many times where Chris and I were like, wait, what? I have, I have cancer. Like this makes no sense. There were times where we'd forget and we'd say like, I wish this was a dream. I remember thinking we, we had gotten in a bit of a fight a couple of days before cancer. Cause we, uh, we were having a really hard time with bedtime with Olive. Like as an exposure therapist, you know, know everything to do with your kid with bedtime. And then when you're a parent, like it's, it's impossible to do. Right, right. And we were really stressed out because she was kind of being a nightmare with bedtime. And I remember thinking, wow, I wish I could go back to being stressed out about that. I wish I could go back to that being the thing, you know? And so it was again and again. Um, and it was building my army, my supports, my village by, by pulling people in. So I got that two for one. 
where I wasn't accepting was this may or may not be stage four. This may or may not kill me. Um, I don't know how much time I'll have to live. And my mind, my version of radical non-acceptance wasn't the denial. It was going towards the worst possible outcome. Um, and, and thinking the bad thing is the predictable bad thing is going to happen versus the uncertainty. So, that, so you were, that, you, you were settling the uncertainty in your mind by going to the bad option. Yep. Like assuming the worst and, and then preparing for that, which isn't, which is, uh, which might be itself a useful skill, but it isn't the same as radical acceptance of the because fa the fact is you didn't know. The fact is for, there was a period of time there where you were hovering in between uh, a biopsy and not knowing what stage you were at. I assume that also not just biopsy, but you must have had scans and things at that point. Right, I was waiting for the metastatic workup to have right. a CT scan and a bone scan, and um, going to the worst—you know—it it, you think it causes suffering, but it also gives you some relief from from the uncertainty, and it's it's not effective. Um, and so I had to I had to work on that actively, and I think that comes up a lot with anxiety. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Wow. What is, so what did you find out? What did, what, so tell us the next step. So on, um, February 4th, I met my dream team of doctors at Zena Farber and I, um, my, my doctor, my oncologist specializes in HER2 cancer and, um, she made it clear, you know, we've, we've got treatments like very clearly, um, hopeful, positive. She had shared that they're going to do chemo first um, as a way to test out if it works before surgery. So mm. I, um, uh, she, the clinical trials say 65% of women will respond to chemo and have what's called a pathologic complete response where the cancer is gone. Um, she knocked me down to 50% because of my age and staging. So talk about an uncertainty exposure. It was really 50-50. And, um, you know, what's really helped me is labeling, um, labeling yeah. skills opportunities. Uh, so lemonade out of lemons and thinking like, well, this is, this is going to be the hardest uncertainty exposure I've done and going into this treatment, knowing it, it may or may not be effective. Um, I, I completed this first leg of treatment. Actually, I'm Charlie, I'm calling it today. Um, is the day that I completed my chemo. So it was six cycles and each cycle is three weeks. Um, and that three weeks ends today. And so wow. at cancer centers, a lot of them have bells, like chemo radiation bells that patients ring to celebrate the end of their treatment. Mm. Some, some hospitals don't. And the reason I asked, you would think it's like a nice thing, a celebratory thing, I had asked my team if they had one and they said, you know, it's nice for some people, but for other people, they don't get to ring the bell or a treatment doesn't work and it brings up stuff for them. And that's why they don't do it. And so dialectics has been such a, an important part of my coping and my treatment and being able to see that there are these two sides that the bell is good and bad. And yeah. so I, I like yeah. that they didn't have it. And I have been planning rather than ringing the bell on, on, um, June 3rd, which was my last infusion day, I'm choosing to ring it today 
And I'd like to do that right now, if that's okay with you. Oh, I was just going to say, let's do this. I got, I got a bell right here. Oh my God. So touching. So I would say over the past 18 weeks, I had diarrhea maybe 80% of these days and nausea and bone pain and steroid hell. And um, I walked through hell um, and I'm proud of ringing this bell. I won't, 50-50 chance it got rid of the cancer. The cancer's still there. I'll, I'll know in a couple of weeks, but no matter what happens with that, I get to ring this bell for doing it. And that's something I'm proud of. Yeah. Please do. Oh my God. It's so, so touching. You're, I just, you know, I feel like uh, I'm relating to a 38 year old woman and I'm, and I'm relating to a six year old girl who's just proud and pleased that she was able to dive into that swimming pool when it's so frightening. And it's sort of what you've been through is just so much goes into ringing that bell. It's just a little hard. It's hard even to sit here and just sort of calmly tolerate this. I I have a, a bell. You can see it above my head. I do. A large, a large one. I thought, well, should I get my bell out? But I thought, no, this is your bell. <laughs> this is not my bell. And this is, I thought, should I join you with that? And it's, no, this is a, a, in a way you have, like you said, you have Andrea's army, uh, you called it. I love that. It's your sort of social support system and you've cultivated it and you've used it and people have stuck with you, but there, but it's also a solo journey, right? I mean, no matter how good that army is, it, there's always just you going to sleep at night, thinking your last thoughts of the day about what you're going through. Tough. I think, I think it's interesting because DBT, you know, talks about DBT as a treatment of a community of therapists treating a, ther a community of clients. And there is really that team aspect. And I think that's something as an affiliative person, I loved about the treatment and, and have made my lifestyle. And so having my medical team and really, um, you know, one thing I haven't said on here, I've been journaling um, as a way of coping and writing. And so I have a caring bridge account. I um, just hit, I think, 113 posts. And so writing and expressing has been really important. Um, and, um, you know, really feeling like I, I have brought in people in different ways that match our relationship and, and who they are to get through this. And there are times where we're through this. I've, I've never felt so connected with, you know, getting packages and, and phone calls and things that, that really mean a lot. And then never so alone because nobody really can understand um, what it feels like. And, and I think, uh, I think with fear in particular is the place that, that feels so alone. Just, just coming face to face with the fear that you won't make it. Yep. And the fear that your, that your daughter, Charlie won't remember. I mean, yes. those kind of fears are really just, hard, just hard to face. What do you do about them? How do you, how do you, how do you face those fears? How do you, 
respond. I don't even know how to ask the question, but I think it's very important because you're you're a very skillful person. Um, so I honestly don't remember if this conversation happened before it wasn't metastatic, which by the way is a little bit it's meaningful and it's not, right? Because um I know I know that Right now, there's not evidence of, of the cancer having spread spread beyond my lymph nodes. Imaging isn't perfect. You know, it it possibly could, and it, and it could come back. I mean, that's the other thing is that right now I'm focused on the, the war that I'm in to get cancer-free, and I know that there's going to be fear um, beyond this. My, my Aunt Debbie um, um, is a breast cancer survivor and had... Um, one recurrence and she's been reading my journal and it's been so cool to see her connect with DBT. Um, I don't think she would have had any reason to really connect with it, you know, outside in her life and saying how these things relate and give her tools where right now she has no evidence of disease. She's not doing active treatment and the fear is there. And so I, I think there's different stages of, of cancer, but, but the same thing can relate to other just hells that we, that, that everybody goes through too. Right. Right. Um, so I had this conversation um, with Alan Frizzetti, who, who many listeners will know as, as a DBT hero, um, and shared with him just how the things about not being there for Charlie and, um, you know, talking about how the worrying doesn't help. Like our minds, I think, often have us worry or think of the worst case scenario to get some relief. And that, you know, I guess really me wanting to be there for her and knowing I can't and kind of him reflecting back, like what you can do is be in the moment with her, be, be with her now. And hopefully this won't happen where you're not there. And we can only expect and hope that her having this time with you now is going to do her well, you know, in the long term for when it happens. And it was so clear to me, as much as it was painful and scary to be at Seth's funeral, seeing the amount of life in these years since his diagnosis and his, his only having been 51 years alive um, is more than I imagine most people live in 100 years. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think mindfulness is this moment forward and mindfulness of being in this moment. So hmm. um it's scary. It's really fucking scary. Um, and I think it's the looking back, thinking about how I want to live my life no matter what happens. And that's being, being here now. You know, I, I like what Alan said to you. And, and also, I just think um, the, um, the idea that Charlie wouldn't remember you at a certain point in time later is very much of a concept. It's a concept. It isn't reality. And it might happen. It might not. It might not take, it definitely won't take the form you're thinking of it. Uh, it just never will because it's more complicated than that. But it's also just as true that, you know, even, even if you passed away today, uh, it's unforgettable. Uh, the impact you've made yesterday and today and and with and with her and with the people around her that'll continue if that were to happen but it's also it's also just so much a concept that this again i feel in the the pressure in the conversation 
that comes from the intolerance of uncertainty. It's sort of like, um, it, it's, it's just the, part of what adds to the suffering is, oh, yes. of course, of course, it's going to be the worst outcome. Let me think of all of the worst things that are going to happen. And it's just sort of like, you just don't know. It's just so uncertain uh, what's going to happen to you and what's going to happen actually to me uh, in the next day, even. But it, but it's the uncertainty is just really hard to bear. Um, but could you, I want to, I want to, because I'm, a, I'm also identifying with the people who might be listening to this whenever they listen, <clears throat> you kept using a term, uh, her too. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Because most people probably wouldn't know. Yes. Yeah, so breast cancer has um, different types. And so there are three different receptors that they test for when, when they detect breast cancer. So one is estrogen, one is progesterone, and the other is, is HER2. And um, so you can be any constellation of positive or negative for the, for the three. Um, and so I'm negative for both of the, um, the estrogen-progesterone hormones and then positive for, for HER2. And um, what that allows is medicine, uh, it's biologic medicine, the targeted therapy oh, really goes after the whole body. And that's why we have these really horrible side effects. And HER2 is more targeted just to the HER2 cells. Um, and so that treatment didn't exist before, which made this such a deadly kind of cancer to have. And now that we have it, there are better outcomes. And um Um, I lost my train of thought. There's a little bit of chemo brain still happening. So, so I will be on this treatment for her too um, over the next year at a minimum every three weeks. And if, if the cancer is, is still there, um, I'll need some more chemo after surgery. And that's what we'll, we'll find out in a few weeks. I want to ask you something that came up in a conversation you and I had before this podcast. I mean, last week or a couple of days ago, whenever it was when you and I last talked. Um, you mentioned something that had not occurred to me before, how it would be that when you tell other people you have breast cancer, yeah. that, that because that's a common, the most common cancer for women to have, that you'll get certain kinds of responses that are well intended, but that don't go very well for you, right? And I, I, I just wanted you to have a chance to say something about it. I thought it was really important aspect of how you can. Yeah. So, every, I think just about everyone knows somebody with breast cancer. It's very, very common. And so when I told people, folks were, were it was clearly coming from a good place. The intention was there to be loving. And it was what we sometimes call like an error of compassion where it was actually, could be hurtful. I would share my experience. Naturally hearing that would, would bring up negative emotions and, and people would say, oh, um, I know so-and-so who has breast cancer, you should talk to them or someone had this. And what I felt was, yeah, but their experience isn't mine. And right. And either it was a stage one, a stage zero, and it felt like, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of them. I wish I just had a lumpectomy, like what I would have. Or 
if it was if it was metastatic or they passed away, it's like I don't need to hear this right now. And so it's the comparison. And so I think where people were coming from is when whenever there's distress, our brains I think naturally want us to reduce the distress and problem solving is a way to do that. That actually ended up feeling invalidating to me. I I actually wanted somebody to just kind of join me to explore to to understand, to ask questions about my experience rather than giving me a solution that actually I wasn't looking for. And this is something that I think I was very attuned to and could put the label on because I work with adolescents with, with um, anxiety disorders and emotion dysregulation and in coaching parents on validation um, and invalidation, um, going right to problem solving and trying to fix it, often people experience as invalidating whether or not you're a super sensor, but especially if you are. And so I kind of over time reflected on that and realized it's a comparison. That's, that's the thing that's setting me off. And judgments are, are uh, comparisons are judgments. Um, and we lose information. And so that was something I think I, just having that language and understand where this was coming from, how it affected me, helped me let go of suffering. Because at first I was like so annoyed by it. Um, and I think the other piece is people, I think, tend to assume, make assumptions that breast cancer is this one thing, but you've got the different grades, you've got the hormone receptors, the HER2, um, has it spread and very different treatments. And so I, I see that a lot. I'm in a bunch of support groups and people feeling invalidated in these different ways. So it was almost like, you know, in mental health, um, somebody finding out someone had, um, you know, severe OCD and somebody saying, oh, but well, I know this person who has depression, thinking it's like mental illness is one thing. And, you know, that metaphor helped for me. So in, in a way, if you were to, not that this happens this way, but if you were to say to somebody, if somebody said to you, all right, now that I hear that you have breast cancer and that you're in treatment for that, um, how should I behave? What, what's the best way for me to behave? I have a feeling you would be saying something quite simple, like, well, just be curious and listen to me, you know, not, not, not come up with a solution, not say the right thing, not validate me in the correct way, you know, of, 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 you know, like just, just put that all down and just be there. Yes. Just be there. You know, like Thich Nhat Hanh would teach, um, darling, I am here for you. That's it. And then it goes from there. But it, what you're saying, in a way, is complicated, but it's also very simple. And yet we often rush past it. I mean, uh, people rush past because they're anxious and they want to be helpful and they don't know what to say, right? Exactly. That's Being with me, which I realize is asking the person to tolerate their own distress, to feel their own distress. And, and that's, that's a big ask. I, I would say yes and to what you said, Charlie, everything you said and... And I think the, the not telling people to correctly validate or be afraid of saying this one thing, what I, I had this conversation with, with dozens and dozens of people was like, hey, I don't know how to talk about cancer either. Like, just because I have cancer doesn't mean I know how to do this. We're going to make mistakes. I, I want you to know, like, I'm not expecting you to say the right thing or the wrong thing. Yeah. I want you to trust me. My commitment is to observe the impact it has on me. And if, if, if it doesn't work for me or it hurts me, I'll tell you. And so, so I'm asking you to be willing to quote unquote make mistakes. Like I don't even know if it is a mistake or, you know, not walk on eggshells. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Because I think whenever anyone's trying, especially in an emotional situation, to say or do the right thing, like that, that's just going to, it creates too much tension and the walking on eggshells ends up being invalidating or, or hurting. And so, um, like, we're going to do this together. We're going to figure this out together is a big part of it. You know, one thing I also wanted to get to based on a, a previous conversation was, um, you, you actually, you may or not remember it this way, but my mind categorized what we wanted to get to, and we're not going to get to all of it today. But one was kind of the various ways that you've coped with skills, how, how you've coped with skills. And you highlighted some skills like mindfulness skills and being dialectical and using cope ahead and using acting opposite. These various skills that some people listening might have heard of, some people listening might not have heard of. There's that whole category of things, which is huge. I mean, actually, when I've read your journal, uh, I think I wrote back to you at one point just saying, you know, this is, you're right, basically, you're writing a book on DBT skills. I mean, it's like everything. And, um, and it's just in, incredible. Um, the second thing you, the second category was your, your, our, your army, uh, the sort of your social support army and how that has worked for you. And the third had to do with wise mind and more of a spiritual path. And I wonder if, I, I consider us to have about another 10 minutes or so. And I wonder if you can, you know, choose, you can't comment on everything. Uh, and like, and I, I'll tell people who are listening, if you want to hear more, we are going to sit down again in a follow-up podcast to this uh, within uh, a month. Um, I think we were taught, we named a couple possible dates in July. So um, you can follow up, but let, let's just use the rest of the time and comment on what, what you want to say um, to people so they can kind of hear how you've been coming to grips. I think I'll speak about wise mind. Um, okay. That one so much. So um, I see, I see leaning on my skills, the various skills, the people, and then Maybe this goes to what you were saying, Charlie, about while you have this this village and, and people, you are the one ringing the bell, you, you are doing this. I think knowing I have kind of this wise mind of, of mine um, to both lean on other people and lean on myself. And um, getting to wise mind as a place where I am, I have emotions that are you know, the valid emotions and reason. And I can, I can kind of think and speak and problem solve at the same time. And I remember, you know, teaching different people about wise mind over the years and people like being surprised to hear you can cry in wise mind. Um, you know, I think sometimes people will, will mistake wise mind for reasonable mind, but, but being able to have a space where there's both that's both intuitive and just knowing intuitively like a gut sense, but also based on your experience. And so it's been really helpful for me to have leaned on skills through other versions of hell before this, know they can support me, know what works and being able to like learn from it and adjust and put that into action here and being able to take kind of chances. Um, and so I think I've gotten like, I think there have been times where I really, really want to be in wise mind and can't that's caused an extra frustration. Um, and times where I'm like, I know I'm here, I'm doing this, 
and and I've noticed not suffering even though pain is incredibly high. Um, one of the things I learned from Seth early on is you've got distress, so zero to 10 distress. You've also got distress tolerance or your ability to tolerate distress. They're often correlated, but they don't have to be. So, so I, you know, had used this myself before with clients, with, with friends that I'm coaching, um, that you can be at a 10 out of 10 distress and you can be at a 10 out of 10 distress tolerance. And so I think I have been really, I've been on medical leave. I want to name, I, I've been really privileged and fortunate that, that our family can do this while I'm, I'm on medical leave. Um, and so I've been treating this as an kind of all in thing that not everyone has that opportunity, but doing things like kind of all around to bring up my ability to tolerate distress. And so I, I would say humor is a big part of that and silliness and games. Like I think finding little rituals or routines to go with the cancer treatment to, to celebrate when it's actually a, a really hard shitty experience like being able to have both and allow yourself to help have that can be really hard i think mm. guilt and shame can make that hard and it's really helped me my friend Susanna said you're sucking the joy out of like all of this experience um so i think thinking about whether it's with cancer or or any other health that there can be both high distress and high distress tolerance and living living life even with pain and I think that that goes in hand in hand with me getting to my wise mind to make choices too. What, what role has, you, you mentioned something that you've gotten into more, which is gardening. What, what has gardening done for you? Several functions. So another, another two for sale here. Um, you know, it's interesting, right? When I got my diagnosis, people sent cut flowers, which I hated. I had a, I had this aversive response. I didn't want anything that was going to die. Um, I, I remember that. I don't really have much words yeah. or reason to it. And then I told people, yeah. I, I thanked them, and I appreciate the ones I got. But I said, like, if people ask me, I was like, I, I, you know, you can get me a plant. I don't want, I don't want cut flowers. I remember feeling that. Um, being able to put not know how how long I'll live and know it may be shorter than I would prefer or what I would I would want for myself and my family and to still live and put in put in roots in the ground um is really accepting mm. the reality living as if I am gonna live or I you know what living as if I'm living now and buying clothes was another example of um or buying things for myself was hard. And I knew this was a way of practicing accepting reality that, that I don't know, which isn't that I am going to die, but, but I may or may not die from cancer. Um, mm -hmm. humor helped my, my husband would joke that you're, you're going to live till, to see all of all of six grandchildren, like joke, you know, our, her children, not her grandchildren. I won't live that long. Her children. <laughs> um, you know, in the cancer community amongst providers and, and some patients, some people cope with, all in positivity and that that there's no room for anything that's totally positive that doesn't work for me i'm not judging it as bad if it works for other people great but what's effective or not like that isn't it for me because because it it misses it's 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 not dialectical um, i like i like the point that you're making there because a lot like that came up at the beginning of this podcast that 
there's characteristics about you that are not like everybody else. Um, you have a you you're a uniquely you have a unique nervous system, in my opinion. I mean, you you're in you're in you're very sensitive. You can even tell talking to you. I mean, you pick things up instantly. You have strong reactions to things. You have um, you called yourself when you talked to me before a super sensor, um, and I know what you mean. And then you and you're also somebody who feels things passionately, and you're also somebody who for whatever reason it's been in your life, you're the kind of person who goes all in on things, and that's clear, and you've gone all in on, on this and on DBT and in your relationships with people. You put all of that together, you, you know, you're, you're going to have a very different way than the person who, like I've known people who are just like what you just mentioned, that don't want to hear anything other than a positive statement. Like all you have to do is have one phrase within a sentence that's not totally positive. And the person's like, could you, could we please stay away from that? And that's the way they're coping. And that, and they, and their nervous system needs to cope that way, at least for the time being. There's just, I, I love the way you're telling this because it really, you're, you're owning your own unique, um, your own unique journey here, as opposed to what other people ought to do. This brings it back to wise mind too. Um, and what I wanted to kind of, you know, name as important is, you know, in DBT, we talk about effectiveness as a mindfulness skill of doing what works in the reality you're in, and, and you've got to observe and describe reality to know that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't think there is a what to say to somebody who has cancer or how to cope, be, be all positive or don't, but it takes that mindfulness to, to know in your wise mind, what are your values, what are your needs, what are your sensitivities, and then figure out what's effective from there. And so spending time um, from one wise mind to know that is important. And I think that's something I did before cancer, but this extra pressure and, you know, being in this crisis mode, I think has, has, a, I've, I've taken that from the experience. So I certainly can be very positive. Like I will say, I'm going to take more from cancer than it's taking from me. I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy the lemonade that comes. And, um, I, mm. I see polarizations don't work for me. That's the last thing I want to ask you just before we stop and, and we can expand on this at, at, a, at a, another time is um, I guess I'm thinking back to a different podcast I did that you probably heard uh, with a, another very inspiring person who lost her child at age two. I did and not listen to that one. I will say that I had you a never two did. year old at the time and oh. I, I'm treated. It was too hard. I it do was... know a little about the story. I'll hear it at some point, but it's choosing, you know, when it's effective to do something. And at the time it wasn't. No, that's I very, I understand that. I understand that. And, uh, um, but one of the things I learned talking to her is she, she had very many characteristics like you, I would say without overgeneralizing, but it's sort of, of on the spectrum of human beings and how and how passionately they face what's coming and open and try to cope with it as opposed to suppress things or push away. She's very much on the all in, open, do what she could. And it was very inspiring to hear how she coped with it. But she also described that her husband didn't have that style. And, so, and yet they were a couple going through something together. And of course, you are a couple going through something together, you and your husband, Chris. And, and I just wonder if you can say a little about how your style and his style 
fit together on what what does he do and how does that fit with me because that's another thing managing cancer is managing the person you live with the person you love the person who's your husband in this case um like what do you do and how does he do this i like you naming that because it also acknowledges you know transactions and systems and that that i'm not in isolation and we're we're together as a family so um, Chris is an introvert, which is, which is really interesting that we're opposites in that way. Um, and I think in many ways, I feel like how I've coped with my cancer has been what I did before cancer and then, you know, and like full force, um, for him, I think he's needed to cope in a different way than he would have before. And, and that for him was that open vulnerability part. He's, he's a private guy, he's a physician, and I think physicians are, are not necessarily as, as open with things. And he realized to get through this, we're gonna need support, we're gonna need flexibility. And so I think he was incredibly brave by, by telling his colleagues and accepting mm -hmm. support in that way. Um, I think there's, there's factors of also gender roles in accepting help too, yeah. where I, um, I admire him for it. Um, and I show show our family um mm. i think that there's ways in which of course you know of course it's harder on me as the one with cancer but i think there's some ways in which it's harder on him because he is still working his full-time job he he's not necessarily getting the same support that i am as being the one who's the who's the patient and our temperaments are different and so um i mm. think I think for him, he's acknowledging really the the chronic stress of it and needing to do what works for him. So for him working out, he has this incredible personal trainer named Forrest, who I really like, um, that, that it's the physical exercise for Chris and it helps his mood and that's how he gets through it. Whereas I'd rather be with someone talking or doing things and he's, he's working out and that's what he needs. And if he misses it, it has an impact. So it's not right, you know, you know, neither one is right or wrong, but that's what mm. works for him. Mm. And then how you, how, you know, th this is a, a bigger conversation. Actually, I'm going to be doing the next, the next podcast that will be posted after this one is going to be really trying to discuss what, what does it mean to be dialectical and what does it mean to live dialectically in your relationships and things, which I think everybody in DBT sort of knows this term and knows it's important and has an explanation for it. But I don't think it fully, I don't think most of us fully grasp how, how important it is. And I think that what you just described is, you know, one of the definition of dialectic is the unification of opposites and, uh, and, and finding a synthesis between opposites. And so you and Chris are going through something together and separately and in opposite, in some opposite ways. And you're talking about joining around, I guess, one synthesis is you're both very vulnerable. Yeah. And he's learning to be, he's learning to accept help is part of that for him, which is a, maybe not his normal mode. And I think it's, right. I think we should talk more about dialectics in the next one, like make a point to do that just briefly. I know we have to stop now. I think, I think it helps to think of, you know, you ask people when they first learn dialectics, okay, if the two opposites are red and blue, what's a dialectic? And most common answer you get is purple and and it's not because purple is a watered down version of red or blue so i like to think about it as a plaid where you've got if you look closely at a plaid you've got red and blue both there you've got something that looks purple and something that's all together like 
different. And so for Chris, you know, for, for him and I to have like, you know, kind of introvert, kind of extrovert time, we're not helping each other. And so we, we kind of will plan what we, we joke in like a cheesy way. Like, what do you need for your wellness today? Like, that's a cheesy way of saying it. And he's like, I got to work out, which is exactly the opposite of my coping need of wanting to go to the the PVD flea market, you know, and to, to be together or go swimming with the girls. And so it's a matter of how do we get both and see who needs what on a given day. And so that's something I think we've always needed to navigate and the extra vulnerability makes it makes right, it more challenging. Right, right. How do you how do you how do you preserve his introvertedness and how do you preserve your extrovertedness without having to water them down uh, right. and 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 still be supportive of each other. So, hey, Andrea, I, w- I want to, I mean, like I've said, we're going to, con- we're going to continue this conversation and you're probably going to, and it'll be after you're at a different point very, even though it's very soon about your sort of medical situation. So that'll factor in too, but we can also continue to pick up on what we were talking about here that obviously there's about 400 loose ends that we could follow up on more. And, and I look forward to that. So thank you so much for being willing to do this. I think it's, I don't, and I don't mean this for me personally. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm thinking of all of the people who are going to listen to this in the future, some of whom are one way or another, their lives are touched with cancer. And, uh, and, and so it's just such an important topic. So thank you for coming in and being so personal and so smart and so thoughtful about sharing what you've shared. Truly a pleasure. Thank you, Charlie.